we want to be a church that is shaped by the way that Jesus pictured God. And so we're going to look at a picture this morning which Jesus told in response to two questions. One question was from a man who was not a follower. He didn't have faith, but he asked a question. And that led to a second question from someone who did have faith, someone who followed Jesus. Both of these questions led Jesus to tell a sort of vivid picture of what God is like, and it was meant to help both of them understand better uh, who this God is that has sent Jesus and who he embodies. We're going to look at it this morning because I know that in a room like this, there are some who, like that first man, are not really following but want to know, just as there are others here who have been following God for a long time. Both of us need to see what God looks like. Both of us need to pay attention to Jesus' teaching. Okay, I'm going to give you the details, a little uh, more detail in the background. Now imagine Jesus, like he did often, he's teaching and there's crowds around him. And the crowds are very mixed. They're his disciples are with him, and then there are others who are just curious. There's a pause in Jesus' teaching when a man who's described as very rich decides to ask a question. We're meant to think that here's someone who you would imagine had everything that a person could ever want. Uh, have you ever fantasized about winning the lottery? Right? And in that fantasy, you've got everything you want. That's why you want to win. This is that kind of person. Even though he's got everything anyone could ever want, he asks Jesus this question. He says, hey, the life which you and your followers have, what do I need to give to get that? And the reason he asks is, even though he's got everything, he sees, he sees that they have something which he doesn't yet have, and he wants it. This is an aside, but anyone who sees a true follower of Jesus, not just someone who says they believe in him, but someone who's actually spending time day in and day out walking with Jesus, anyone who sees that person will think, I want what they have. And this man asks, and his assumption is that he'll have to pay for it. And so he says, what do I have to give? Now, Jesus looks him up and down, and, and Jesus judges not just on the outside, but on the inside. And he says to this man, if you want the life that I have, you're going to have to let go of everything that you have. You got to sell everything. Give the money to the poor, come with me, and then you'll have this life which I have. Now, this man is struck by the challenge Everybody else there is also watching this conversation unfold. And he decides not to follow. He says, well, that's too much, and he leaves. That's the first question. What do I have to do to get what you have? Now, after this unfolds, Jesus' followers are watching, and it occurs to one of them to ask Jesus a similar question. Uh, he doesn't have to ask what he has to give up. It's Peter he believes that he's already given up an awful lot. His question is similar but different. He says to Jesus, you know, we've given up everything to follow you. What will we get? Both questions, uh, they're very different, but both questions are united in that the rich man and Peter both have the same general idea about what God is like. They both picture God kind of like an employer. Right? The first man wants to get paid and, and wants to know, what do I have to give to get what I see you have? Like he's going to be an employee and pay for what he, uh, or give something to get what he wants. But Peter's vision of God is similar also in that he's asking, look, we've given up everything, what do we get? 
Both of them are, are thinking of God in those terms. And so Jesus now steps back from both and he knows that they both have uh, some wrong ideas, but they both have it also partly right. And what Jesus wants is for both of them to understand what God is like better than they currently do. And so he tells them a, a story in which he pictures God like an employer because he wants to go with the image that's already in their mind. And now here's what I want to say about you. Uh, no matter what, it, it's very, uh, for me, it's very easy to say this. No matter what, I believe it would do you right to understand God better than you do already. I genuinely believe that. Even if you've heard every story in the Bible and you believe it, the better picture you have of God, it's always able to be improved. The better your picture of God, the better it is for you. And so I want you to look at this picture with that in mind, that if you could see even more of God than you have in the past, it will help. And then, then for those of you who are on the fence or I'm not sure what you think and you've come because a good friend has brought you, I'm glad that you're here. You also can stand to grow, whether you're young or old. You can grow from what you would see also in Jesus' picture of God. Because listen now, this is the heart of it. Because there is actually virtue in seeing God as an employer because too many of us have been led to think that God only cares about what you believe and then when you die, then you get either a benefit or a liability based on having it right or wrong. I'm serious. That's what a lot of people live like. And you need to learn that God is like a great employer ready for you to get involved. Every one of you. Um, this isn't so much in Jesus' story, but I'm telling you from my own experience, your life is meant to have purpose, the kind of purpose that comes when you find God's calling for you. And I believe every one of you has a calling. And if you'd find it even a bit more this morning, I promise you, you'd be ready to see more purpose in your life and it would be better. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, all of us who, like me, have been conscious of God's calling and been working at it. Okay, I mean people who are employed at the church, the staff or the elders who lead here, or volunteers who are doing work for God, which is great. All of us are in danger the moment we start thinking of God as an employer. The same kind of danger which Peter exhibited when he said, hey, I've given an awful lot. What do I get? And so Jesus' story is meant to help us both. Uh, the story is recorded in Matthew chapter 20. We're gonna take some time through it and see what we can learn. In, in the beginning of that chapter, here's how Jesus paints the picture. He says this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now just an aside, when Jesus says kingdom of heaven, he does not just mean what happens after you die. Jesus believed that when men and women began to understand God and live accordingly, they were acting like citizens of God's kingdom already so that it's present right now when we know God is the king and we live like that. So this is not just a story about heaven, but about right now. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus means when people understand God right, it's like a landowner who goes out first thing in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. At sunrise, he's going out to bring people into his vineyard. This is verse two. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. Same thing happens at sunrise and then at nine o'clock. So they went. When he went out again at about noon, 
And about three o'clock, he did the same. This happens at lunchtime, and then it happens a few hours later. And about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And so he said to them, you also go into the vineyard. This is a setting for Jesus' story in which he wants to teach both the rich man who's not yet sure and Peter who's all too sure about what God is like. And in some way, this story is as ordinary as anything Jesus could have told. Uh, Chances are the very day on which he told this story, most of the people having heard it would have gotten up that morning and walked through their own village to see day laborers waiting on the corner ready to be hired. Have any of you seen this in your own town? It still happens. I was told after the second service in East Summit, I saw it this morning as I was coming to the earliest service, there are men waiting to be hired. And that's how it was in Jesus' day. And to this day, in the villages that are still in the same region, that's how it works. Before the sun rises, a group who are looking to get work, they stand out in the market waiting for someone to invite them into to work. And that part of Jesus' story is completely ordinary. But there are a few elements which are very strange. And this is where Jesus wants to teach us about what God is like. And they would have struck the first listeners more so than us because for most of us, we're not that familiar with this. I'm gonna show you how he's teaching about God in these three extraordinary ways. For one thing, you noticed how the, the whole procedure, which started early in the morning, happened over and over again. Did you see that? It happens five times in this story. And for us, that sounds like, okay, well, it happens over and over. No, in Jesus' day, this is weird. It's strange because you would expect maybe once or twice in the day, but over and over, again, five times, this, the way in which this whole procedure is repeated is out of the ordinary, and it makes it seem like there's never-ending work to be done. And this, uh, there can't be enough people invited in, and that's just odd. The fact that it happens over and over again is the first sort of strange fact. There's a second fact, which is equally and maybe even more odd, and that is that it doesn't just happen at six and at nine and at noon, but it happens all the way up until five o'clock. Okay, f- for everyone who hear- heard this story first, they would know that this, the workday starts at six, it ends at six, and five o'clock is the 11th hour. Have you ever heard that expression, why do you always leave everything to the 11th hour? My father used to say that to me every single night because I always left my homework till the 11th hour. And at the 11th hour, everyone would think, it's too late. But here in this story, even though it's five, there's only 60 minutes left in the workday, the whole thing is still happening. Uh, when everyone would think it's just too late for us, there's no way we can still get to work. In this story, here again, the workers are being brought in and that's odd, okay? And then there's a third fact, which is hardest for us to see, but by far the strangest. And it's a question of who is the one going out to bring in the day laborers. Did you notice who it was? It's the landowner, right? And that is weird because everyone hearing this story would know that at six in the morning, the landowner is still sleeping in in the comfort of his home, which he enjoys because he's the guy in charge. And he's not getting up until nine and only then to breakfast in bed where where the servants are giving him bonbons. And at noon, he's gonna be drinking his second or third mimosa. That's how it works (laughs) for the landowner because he's in charge, right? But in Jesus' story, it's the landowner who's going out to the market. And that's really weird. 
Because everyone would think the landowner is above all of those laborers. And now listen, I hope you understand that Jesus is not just telling stories. He's talking about what God is like. And here there are four lessons, even before we get to the big point in Jesus' story, which are for us. They were definitely meant for Peter. They were definitely meant for that man who wondered, what do I have to give up if I can only have what you guys have and everyone else around there? But these four points about what God is like, they are very valuable. And I want you to have them in your mind and in your heart. The first one is, is a picture that shows that God takes initiative. Many, many people will have learned to think about God as if, well, if he is real, he surely is this holy God who's far away or maybe in a fancy church that doesn't look anything like the opera house. And the only way to get close to God is to get going, making yourself right with him, believing the right kinds of things. And maybe then if you take enough, enough initiative yourself, you'll go out and God will want to have something to do with you. But in this story, the landowner is the God figure. And Jesus means to teach already that this is how it works with God. God does not stay back in his majesty and in his glory waiting for us. He actually makes the long journey out to the square where we are waiting to have some kind of purpose in life and he initiates on his own uh, effort a conversation between us and him where he comes to us and invites us. Uh, you've heard the word incarnation. If you've been around a church, you know that theological word. That's Christians, uh, not me, but Christians' way of saying that in Christ, God is with us. That, that God didn't stay far away in heaven, but decided to become a person. And, and he did that so he could come to us. And that's what happens in Jesus. In a way, as Jesus tells this story that, that we're reading here, he is the landowner talking to a group of people who are waiting to hear that he has taken initiative to come to them. I get to tell you this this morning, whoever you are, whether I know you and I know the journey you've been on or you're a stranger to me, a God is taking initiative to come to you. And that already we see in the story. Here's a second fact that, that is in the sort of strangeness of how often the landowner comes. Uh, there is the idea in Jesus' story that God pursues relentlessly. God does not just come once and that's your only chance. But it, like the landowner in this story, God is ready to come again and again to each and every one of us throughout our lives. And he doesn't give up. He comes over and over again. He pursues us relentlessly. Some of you remember when you were young, when you first learned about God's love and calling to you and you came to faith as a young person. Are there some of you in here? And how good that was? Maybe some of you who are young are just now starting to come to faith. I remember I was 13, and I'll tell you that story another time. It was so great when God came and invited me. And that's how it goes for some of us, but not for all of us. Uh, for others, it's not until we're in college. It's, it's noon when God comes and says, hey, I invite you into my work. That's how it was for my wife. She became uh, a follower of Jesus uh, when she was in college. For others, it's not until three o'clock or maybe even some of you, it's not until the five o'clock hour in your life. It's the 11th hour when God will finally come to you and say, I still am inviting you. You've learned to think, no, it's too late. I'm so old, I've got nothing left in my tank. And all the people around you are like, yep, that's that. No, God comes over and over. He persists. Maybe some of you, when you were young, you came to faith and then you wandered away, but now you're hanging out again and God is coming again, yet again, to invite you. And that's a second lesson here that God is persistent. A third is that God will not give up. 
And this especially is the lesson from the five o'clock hour. The fact that the landowner comes when everyone would be inclined to think it's just too late to get to work. We surely have missed our opportunity is Jesus' way of saying, with God, there is no end to his pursuit of you. He will not give up. If you think too much of my life is behind me, you're wrong. If you think the life that is behind me is too bad, I've done so many things that are awful, God could never actually come to me and invite me. And I know that some of you will be tempted with that. Maybe this morning you were so ugly with your spouse that you'd be ashamed if anyone in here knew what had happened and your inclination is to think, well, I've ruined my chances. No, God will not give up. That's also in Jesus' story. And then the fourth thing, which really does tie together all of these three and comes back to why Jesus told the story, is for me the most critical for you to get this morning. And it is that God wants workers. Now, some of you have jobs that are so miserable, the idea that God wants you to work makes you think of your job and you want to run. Maybe you need another job. <laughs> but this is, is so obvious in the way that Jesus decides to teach about what God is like to everybody listening. God is like an employer who's coming over and over again, who's taking initiative, who's come in Jesus incarnate, for whom it's never too late, all for the same reason. He wants to invite people into his vineyards to get to work. And here, whatever else you, you receive this morning, you have to get this. The way that Jesus pictures God is that God is like an employer who's ready to employ us, all of us. There's no one in here who can say, well, it's too late for me, or I don't know enough, or I've not yet got my act together enough. No, even if you are so idle as to linger and hang around, until the end of the day, the God that Jesus pictures here is coming to everyone. And I want to say this to all of you, to every one of you saying, you will never know me. You will never have the life that I want you to have. You will never be the community of faith that I want you to be until you see that I will never give up inviting people into my work. Now, I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't. Um, maybe another time we can dwell on that. How would I know? What does it look like? For, for this morning, what you must grasp is that God himself, the one who created everything, who's decided to come in Jesus, God himself has something for you to do. And this pastor here uh, of Renaissance Church believes that about all of you. So when I lead in this church, I'm going to consistently believe about you that I don't know what it is yet, but God has something good for you to do. Some of you are finding it, and that's wonderful. But not one of you can think like that rich man did. All I need to do is give a few things, then I get it, and I can go off on my own merry way until I die, and then I get some kind of reward. That is not what God is like. All of you instead are invited to think like Peter. I'm going to give something up so I can be at work with God. Now, here's where the rest of the story really matters. Because I know for sure the moment any one of you who sa uh, here says, okay, I'm going to start doing what God wants me to do. I'm going to start working for God. The moment you start thinking like that, the temptation is going to be present right inside of your heart to start looking around and find other people who are not working as hard as you who have not do, done as good a job as you've done, who are not committed to the mission and ministry of the church as much as you are, who've just come to this church where you've been working for a long time and they want to be treated with the same level of importance as you want to be treated, as you deserve to be treated? Is this too personal? It's real. What I'm talking about is real. Nobody's shouting, yeah. I'm telling you, just like Peter, we're going to start to think, ooh, 
We've been at work for a while. What do we get? And so here, now listen to the, the rest of Jesus' story. Because after, after, get it, remember now, after a, a group had been working since 6 a.m., and then others at nine, and then some others at noon, and then some others at three, and then just that group that had been working for one hour after sunsets and the work day is done. Watch how Jesus' story unfolds. This is verse eight. When evening came, as it always does, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay. Excellent. Pay, it's time for pay. And, but watch what he says. Beginning with the last and then going to the first. That is, the way this landowner wants it to happen is that the people who started working just an hour ago, they're the ones who are going to get paid first. And then the people who've been working all day are going to be paid second. And the reason, listen now, the reason Jesus' story unfolds like this is if Peter wants to know what he's going to receive from God for everything that he's given up, he has to see first what other people are going to receive from God. People who've only just now started to give who've only just now started to follow, who've only just now started to believe. So this is especially for those of us who serve, who are leaders, who really believe, who've been around the Renaissance for a long time. This is verse 10. Uh, sorry, uh, verse 9. When those hired about 5 o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now I want you to imagine this. You've worked for just an hour it's time for you to get paid and you receive a full day's wages. That is the pay that you ordinarily would have had to work 12 times that amount in order to get paid that. You, can you imagine how psyched you'd be? How thankful you'd be that you didn't get hired early in the morning? <laughs> how, really, how grateful you'd be? How, how, uh, how much you'd feel you owed to that kind employer? that he would choose to give you so much more than you knew that you deserved. Wouldn't that feel good? Uh, that's what those who were hired at five were feeling. Now, put yourself in the position of the ones who started early. You know what you're thinking, right? If, if they get that much for one hour, how much am I going to get for 12? This is the impulse from which Peter asked Jesus, what do we get for everything that we've given up? It is almost impossible for us not to compare ourselves to others, isn't it? In every way in life, don't you think? It's also very difficult for us not to compare ourselves even in the company of followers of Jesus. And here, this is meant to sting us when we do that. And I know it's very hard to admit that we do that. This is meant to be uh, something that gets under our skin what happens next. Because after paying those that had only been at work for one hour a full day's wages and organizing it in just this way so the others would get to see that before what happened for them, look at how the story unfolds. This is verse 10. Now, when the first came, that is the ones who'd been working for 12 hours, they thought they would receive more. Obviously. But each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner. How could they not grumble? Because this is obviously unfair, right? It just doesn't make any economic sense. 
it seems so galling to them because here they were at work all day and these others just came in in the last 60 minutes and they're going to be paid the same as we are. Now, I know those of you who are followers of Jesus and who've been in a church for a long time are already saying, well, no, no, this is how it works with God. But I guarantee you if there was a story like this at your employment office, if we were together at lunch on Tuesday and it worked out like this, right? You'd be singing a different tune. But you're meant to put yourself in that position as you hear this. And so look at what they look at what they say to the landowner. This is in verse 12. These last they worked only 1 hour and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And let's be honest here. Those who started at 6 they did a lot more work than the others and not only did they do more than the others they did more than they would have had to do if those others were there. Do you see what I mean? Because fewer hands make much heavier work. And, and so not only have they worked longer but harder and the part of the work that they did was much more challenging because the sun was up all the way. And, and, and even though this is true, do you notice what they say? The landowner's way of paying has made these two equal. And that doesn't seem right. Because when I look at myself and in my own way of thinking economically, we're simply not equal. And that's offensive. What the landowner has done is an offense because he's treated us as if we're equal and we're not equal. And that is what happens in every human heart that is hard at work in general, but even in the heart of every man or woman who's decided to work hard for God as you should. When you begin to see the way that God treats those who've not been working as long as you have, who've not been working as well as you have, who've not been at work when things were as hard as when you were at work. And understand this, and this is especially for those of us who've been in Renaissance for a long time or in any church for a long time. The truth is, a lot of us will begin over time to feel that the work we've done to make this all happen ought to count for something for us compared to those people who used to be around, but then when it got hard, they left. And now that the church is doing well again, they're back here. What gives them the right to feel that they're here? This is not me making up stuff. Um, this exact concern has been voiced to me here at Renaissance Church, which went through some difficult times and is, is doing a bit better. Uh, before we start pointing fingers at those bad people who feel like that, you know that you come here and get involved like I've been encouraging you to, that before long, someone else is going to join this church, which we hope for, Right? There's going to be some more people here. But then there's going to be a part of you that thinks, who are all these new people? What right do they have? I used to sit in that seat. <laughs> I promise you. And why are they getting that kind of positive attention from the pastor and from other leaders? Doesn't he know? Don't, don't they know? Doesn't she know that I've done a lot more? I've given more than they have. What gives them the right? I know this will happen. I'm sure of it. And it will happen because there'll be a part of us that will say, you know, we're not all equal. And it just doesn't make sense that we should be treated as if we are. And can I tell you what? The truth about us is that we're not all equal. There are some people who are doing great and there are some people who are doing bad. I've watched the news. I'm serious. I know the misery and the ugliness that's all over the world. But here is how it works with God. And this, you must grasp this. And this is offensive in some ways, but it's how it works. The way it works with God 
is that even when we compare ourselves to others and we're very far apart from that other person, listen now, we are all equally far apart from God. Because even though I'm way better than someone who's awfully wicked, and I may see the distance between me and that other person as great as the distance from New Jersey, from Summit, New Jersey, to London, England, and they're far apart, right? God is so good and pure and holy and benevolent always that it's like he's all the way out at the sun. And the distance from the sun to New Jersey is the same as the distance from the sun to London, England. And what God says when he looks at both of us is here's how it's going to work with me. This is how God's decided to do it. And you can't change this. You can fight it, but you can't change it. God's decided that apart from righteousness on their part, Here's how they're going to be justified before me. That is, here is how they're going to be paid for the work that they do for me, which is where their real life is. Their real life is not in pursuing their own interests, but in finding their part in my vineyard and getting about my work. And the way it's going to work is they're all going to be paid the same because none of them deserves anything at all, but the way I've decided to be God is to give them myself in Jesus so that they're all free to have real life and, and live for me in a way that brings them joy and freedom and goodness and in a way that expands my work in the world and all I want is for more of them to know my love and come into my work. That is my combination of Matthew 20 and Romans chapter 3, which you're free to read on your own. The way it works with God is that, please listen now, he is unfair. Here is how uh, Jesus replies to their observation that it's not fair. Uh, Verse 13, he replied, to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. Now, I don't want to make too much of that last phrase, but I like to think here God's saying, I'm so sick of you. Get away from me for a little while. <laughs> and God's allowed to say that, right? But he's also called this man friend. And I I know it's easy to paint a straw man of the self-righteous person who we all love to hate, but let's be careful. God also regards that one as a friend. And again, that's what God's like. He's decided to open his heart to be friends with everyone, to the bad person and to the really good person, to the person who is sure that God doesn't want anything to do with them because they're too unrighteous, as well as the person who is so self-righteous they think that God only likes them. To all of them, God says, friend, and then says very simply, I'm not being unfair to you. We've worked out this agreement already. Remember what happened at six in the morning? The landowner went out and said, I'll pay you a usual wage, and that's what's happened at the end of the day. So please follow logically. It means that this guy's upset not because God has been unfair in paying him too little. He's upset because God has been unfair in paying someone else too much, right? Think about how beautiful that is. God will never, ever be unfair by giving less than he should. God will always be unfair by giving more than is deserved. And that's how it goes with God, not just with people who've only been working for a little while, but with everyone. But we must get that into our heart. No matter what, the unfairness of God is not only good for people who we look down on, but it's good for us too. That's good news. It really is. It's great news for all of us that God's unfairness is always to our benefit and everyone's benefit. 
end, listen now, because this is a challenge and it's meant to sting. The moment any one of us decides to tell God that he's not allowed to be gracious to another person, we will remove ourselves from God's grace for us. And I want that to sink in to your heart so that you don't get yourself tangled up in the mess of trying to forbid God's grace from someone else because I want you to live in the freedom of receiving God's grace for you, which is always for you. And I don't want our church to turn into a place that decides it's our job to say who's allowed to receive it. Because if we do, one thing's for sure. We have removed ourselves from God's grace. Because God is an employer who will not let us tell him what he's allowed to do with what belongs to him. Uh, this is how that part is put at the end. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. That's how it's going to be with God. He's going to choose to be unfair over and over again. Thank goodness for every one of us. And if you're inclined to think, well, his grace isn't for me, nonsense. He's decided to be unfair with what belongs to him and to give you what he wants to give you, which is everything. But then these two questions, they're great questions for all of us. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? And this especially is meant to be a question for Peter and those who like Peter and like me and other people who work for churches, for, for those of us who've given up a lot to try to do what we think God wants us to do. The question is, are we going to be envious when God is generous to people who we see don't deserve it? And if we take this seriously, it will shape our church, and this is what I'm after, to be a church which is generous with others. And I don't mean just giving them things, but being happy when God's grace is open to yet another person who doesn't deserve it, just like us. And the moment we begin to receive his grace, here's the danger, we are going to begin to believe that we have something which we've earned, and that's when we're in trouble. And I promise that trouble will always happen. It happens in every church. It happens in every relationship. It happens in every area of life. Uh, I want to show you a picture of it. Uh, that a friend shared with me, and this is how I want to end. I have a friend who teaches graduate students at the University of Delaware. He's a great teacher. He's also a very sincere Christian, and so he's sensitive to seeing the ways that people will make a claim on grace. Uh, there was a, a large class of students uh, who at the very beginning of the semester heard that their teacher's policy was, if you get a paper in late, you get a zero on it. And the first time a paper was due, which was about three months, uh, excuse me, three weeks into the semester, there were 10 students who were late. Now, uh, on the day uh, that they were to be handed in, the professor addressed the class, explaining that some students had explained extenuating circumstances, and because they had good reasons, he had decided to waive his rule for this first paper, and if you were one of the 10, even if you hadn't given him reasons, you could get it in late, but one week, and then things would be okay. The, the second paper is due about two-thirds of the way through the semester. How many papers do you think were late this time? Exactly 20. You, were you at the first service? Yeah. Oh, that's not fair. <laughs> she, she was one of the students. He says, look, I heard again from some of you there were good reasons, and I'm going to make this exception, but only this time. 
I will also give you one more week. But listen, the final paper is due at the end, and if you get that in late, it will be a zero. No exceptions. The final is due. 30 students have excuses and don't have it in on time. And on that morning, the professor stands before the entire class and says, 30 of you got it in late, and all 30 of you are going to get zeros because I was clear, and that's my policy. The class begins to boil with anger. Everybody starts to murmur. There's anger that is sort of spreading out. One very brave student in the back clenches his fist and start, he tries to start a chant. You know how that happens in like, right? He says, this is wrong. This cannot be done. This is so unfair. How dare you do this? And then he stands up and in front of the whole class says, you cannot do this. You had an exception the first and second time. You set a precedent. We demand justice. Everybody, yay! The professor waits for everyone to quiet down. He looks right in that man's face and says, you demand justice? You got your first two papers in late also, and so now you have zeros on those two papers as well. Does anyone else demand justice? <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> I think Jesus wants us to know that if we demand justice because we don't think somebody else should get what God decides to give them, we are going to find ourselves regretting that demand. And listen now, trust me, not just at the end of all things, which I cannot imagine how desperately any one of you would regret it if you stand before God's judgment at the end and try to tell him that he's not allowed to love other people. My goodness, God help you, or me. Not just then, but even today, that we should be generous with God's grace for others. And then we can receive it ourselves. And listen, this is the most important thing. Then we can all get busy working in the vineyards, which is what God made us all for as individuals and as a church. So let's pray that God's grace would come all the way down into our hearts. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that like that landowner, you did not stay far away, but you decided to come right down into the marketplace of our lives with your invitation. And we thank you that you come over and over again because many of us have been slow to respond. We thank you that there's never a time when it's too late. And we ask very simply that this morning our hearts would be open again to answer with an enthusiastic yes to your invitation to get, get working in the vineyards. And then, God, we pray for your help. We need it. Every one of us needs it in here, especially those of us who've been hard at work. We need your help so that we don't give in to the temptation to believe the lie that we deserve more of your grace than other people because of how hard we've been working. We don't want that for ourselves individually, and then we do not want that for the church as a whole. Instead, we want you to help Renaissance Church become a place that's generous in our way of seeing your grace for others so that we become a place where everyone's busy working, where everyone's welcome and invited in, where everyone has a strong sense that it is your grace through and through that has welcomed us. We want to be that kind of community together and we need your help to be it. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.